0: Faith in Christ makes us new. The first day of spring was just a few weeks ago. I believe three weeks ago, maybe four. It was Monday, March the 20th. And spring is a wonderful time of year, except for the tornado watches and hailstorms and all that stuff we have here in Texas. Everything around us begins to awaken from its winter sleep begins to bud forth with new and vibrant life. Grass and trees begin turning green, but in my case, all my grass burned up last year, now I have green weeds. Flowers begin to grow, pleasant temperatures, and gentle breezes. Whereas here in Texas may last a week, week and a half, and it's gonna get so hot you can't stand to go outside. But springtime in Texas means the blue bonnets are in bloom. Have you seen anybody pull to the side of the road to take pictures in the blue bonnets. Have you done that? Pulled over and placed the kids down the blue bonnets, and I'm seeing people give each other a look as I mention this. May, according to the stats, May is typically our first rainy season of the year, but with rain comes severe weather. Praise God that we have been spared a lot of the bad weather that's happened in Mississippi and Arkansas and other places. We need to remember those in our prayers. I think it's appropriate that we celebrate Easter during the season when life springs forth anew because new life is exactly what Easter is all about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Have you ever been on your computer and you've messed something up and you need to reset? Alt, control, delete. Resets it. Right? You have this reset. Would you like to have that in your life this morning? That you can have a reset. That's what it means to be in Christ. Everything has passed away. Become, everything has become new. The Tim that I was before I came to Christ is gone. I become new in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean I don't sin. I still sin. But now I'm embracing the things of Christ. I run to Christ. He will change your life. Easter morning revealed an empty tomb because Jesus had risen from the grave. Our text this morning tells us the story of two women who made the f- first discovery and therefore had a choice to make. Do they trust the good news that Jesus has risen from the grave? Or do they ignore the evidence that's right in front of them? Now, let me just jump to look. I'm going to get ahead of myself. The tomb is empty. Everybody knew where he was laid to rest. There's no mistaking what tomb it was. Joseph of Arimathea went and got the body of Christ, put spices, wrapped him in linen, and put him in his tomb. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, went to Pontius Pilate and said, he was talking about that he would rise in three days put your seal on it, put guards around it, so the disciples will not steal the body and then turn around and tell everybody that he is risen. Well, the guards left, which, by the way, if you're a Roman soldier back in those days, if you left your post, you were killed. And I will tell you, after serving in the Navy, if I left my post during time of war, I could be lined up and shot. So they just didn't leave because they just wanted to. And they knew the penalty for leaving their post. The seal was broken, that stone was rolled away. A stone that probably weighed as much as a Volkswagen or more. Talk about the Volkswagen Beetle. And the body was gone. Now it was in the best interest of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and the Romans, to find the body and parade the body up. No, he is dead. Here is his body. Be quiet. But nowhere through the course of time did anyone find the body. We know there's about 500 or more witnesses that saw Jesus after his resurrection. So here's my question to you. No one argues that the tomb wasn't empty. Everybody agrees, yes, the tomb is empty. The question becomes, how did it get empty? How do you answer that question? When you choose faith to say, yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, You are found in Christ and your life will be made new. Let's look at our text, going back to verse 1. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, agree it was very early on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week. That's why, as Baptists, or as Protestants, we meet for worship on Sunday, not Saturday, which is the Sabbath, because we believe Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. So every Sunday should be a celebration of Easter in some form or fashion that we remember that our Savior is risen. Now, the women headed for the, for the tomb began to dawn. Now, the MIV is a little too specific, says at dawn, it was early in the week. Literally if you if you translate it down as it falls in the original Greek language as the first day of the week was dawning. And we find in Matthew 27 verse 61 these two women are mentioned and tell them to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was the two ladies. And we find in Mark 16:1 his account explains the purpose why they went. They wanted to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. Perhaps they were hoping to talk to the guard to help them get in. Instead, they became the first witnesses to the resurrection. I want you to know that stone was huge, very heavy. It took seven men to roll this thing back out to get them in, and then roll it back, and they got there, and they were saying, how are we going to get this, this stone rolled away? But when they got there, guess what? It was already rolled away. Now, ladies, in the ancient world, A woman's testimony was not accepted as legal binding. They would not take a lady's word for it. So if this story of the resurrection is made up, a fable or a myth that some people talk about in our society today, then why does the Bible talk about two women being the first witnesses to the resurrection? If you're going to make this up, you would say two men were the first witnesses. But no, it was two women. Gives credibility to the story. And the role of women in this account points to a new age of equality. i turn you to Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For all you are one in Christ Jesus. So what he's talking about, everything outside in society that splits us up, divides us, goes away at the foot of the cross. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Everybody has equal value, equal worth. Jesus died for every last man, woman, and child on this planet. Whoever's lived, who's living now, and who will live in the future. That's how great his love is. And when we could not think about the things of God, we could care less about the things of God the Bible tells us, even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And even now, He's reaching out to all of humanity. In verse 2, it says, a severe or violent or great earthquake had occurred. Now, this could conceivably be the same earthquake that took place in Matthew 27 51 and 52. It tells us that when Christ died, He said, It is finished. There was an earthquake. The veil was ripped in two in the temple that separated the <clears throat> Holy of Holies from the holy place. It even tells us that rocks were split open. Some rose from the grave even then. But some say it was an aftershock of that quake. However, the text tells us why this quake happened. Look back in verse 2. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now it's clear that this quake preceded the woman's arrival. In Mark chapter 16, verse 3 and 4, we read that the angel's already there, just like he's already there when the ladies get here in Matthew's account. And the fact that he's sitting is an indication of the completion or the triumph that Jesus has done. In other words, Jesus' work is complete. And when it says that he is now seated at the right hand of God, that means the work that Jesus was sent to do is completely finished and he has now sat down at the most prestigious place he could at the right hand of of God, which is the most prestigious, honorable, and position of power. That's where he's at. And here we see the angel sitting on the stone. And the quake does attest to the cosmic significance of these events. Easter changes everything. So many religious leaders now, in our day, and in the past, have always come around and said, I'll show you the way for happiness. I'll show you the way to do this. I'll show you the way to do that. Only Jesus declared that He was the way, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He's the only one who's no longer in the grave. Look how it says about this angel. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. This matches similar angelic appearances that we find at the birth of Jesus. As his words, telling the woman, do not be afraid. Remember what the angel told the shepherds watching their flock by night when Jesus was born? What's the first words they told the shepherds? Do not be afraid. In fact, you'll find it throughout Scripture. When the angel shows up, the first words out of their mouth is, do not be afraid. Do you know why only one, you go back to the shepherd's account, one angel shows up, announces the news, tells them not be afraid, then the whole host of heaven show up. I had a New Testament professor ask us why the only one show up and then the rest of the host of heaven. I don't know. He said probably because they could not take seeing all those angels at once, would have had a heart attack and died on the spot. There is something wonderful and magnificent but also terrifying when you see God or an angel as they truly are. Luke, in his account, adds that a second person or an angel was present. Luke chapter 24, verse 4. He says, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Two men in clothes that gleam like lightning. So its appearance is appropriate, angelic, brilliant, glorious, and pure. Now what happens to the guards? Look at verse 4. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now that Greek word translated shook comes from the same root word as the word earthquake in verse 2. So the whole scene terrifies the guards so much they become temporarily paralyzed so they cannot intervene. These are hardened, seasoned Roman soldiers. Something terrified them so much they could not even move and then would take off running and abandoning their post. Look what the angel talks, tells to the ladies here in verse 5. I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. I imagine they were terrified, but somewhat delighted at the same time because their question in Mark 16, verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us for the interest of the tomb? Has been answered. The tomb is open. They don't have to worry about rolling away the stone anymore. And the angel reveals his understanding of their mission, why they had come. They're looking for a corpse, but nobody remains. Jesus is not just spiritually alive because the tomb is empty. And look what he says in verse 6. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. No text of scripture ever speaks of Jesus raising himself. Acts 2 verse 24. God raised him, Jesus, up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's always God raising because what happened is Jesus came into human flesh, lived a perfect life, and then willingly, voluntarily laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. Because sin has to be paid for. has to be paid for in blood. Without, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, it says in the book of Hebrews. So he laid his life down, he was crucified, he died. And because God the Father was pleased with the sacrifice, he raised them again. And because of that substitutionary sacrifice, you place your faith in him, then his righteousness is now imputed on you. See, at the time of conversion, the blood of Christ covers you. God, the Father, no longer sees you in your sin and your shame. He sees you through the blood of Christ that washes all our sin away. And because of that, you can stand before a holy God one day, pure, And without blemish. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 tells us this. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. That's what baptism shows. It's a public declaration of our faith. We die to ourselves so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. And that's baptism is a symbol of what's already happened in your heart. You're no longer living for yourself, you're living for him. He gives you a new nature. Let me explain it to you this way. I'm not perfect. I was looking for an amen over there, but I didn't get it. I'm not perfect. But instead of turning away from God and having nothing to do with God, because... Of Christ's sacrifice, because my faith in him, i now, now turning. That means to repent. I turn around, and now I'm embracing the things of God. I'm chasing after God. We, he had all these laws that we could not keep. None of us in this room can keep the law of God. How many in this room have ever told a lie? And if you don't say you ever told a lie, you're lying now. We all admit that we are liars. So anything else I ask you at this point? Hey, you already told me you're a liar. Ever taken God's name in vain? The holy God that gives you life turned into a filthy cuss word? I have in traffic, I admit it. That's another commandment. And we can go on and on. We couldn't keep it. That's why Christ came. And because of him, the Holy Spirit now comes in and resides in us. Gives us a new nature. A new heart. See, that's something the law can never do. Yes, we should have laws in this land, and yes, we should enforce them. But a law by itself can never change the human heart. Only God can do that. Only God can give you a new nature. Only God can change your heart. He says, I know you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. underlines the reality of Jesus' death. He's not here. And it also talks about the predictions that Jesus made have come true. You see these predictions in Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 21, and Matthew 20:19. For the sake of time, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, if you haven't caught this already... Jesus came knowing full well what he had to do. He knew that he came, his purpose while he was born, was to die for every man, woman, and child. That's why he came. Can I ask you a question? What do you think of when you think of heaven? What kind of pictures flood your mind? Golden streets. We even have a hymn called, I Have a Mansion Over the Hilltop. Another hymn, I just have a cabin in the corner of Glory Land. That's an old one. Jesus left the glory of heaven, took on human flesh. He was even born in a palace as a king should. He was born in a manger among livestock. In a feeding trough where they laid him. In the shadow of all these huge palaces that Herod had built. And in the shadow of those palaces came the Savior of the world. Humble and gentle with lots of humility. In verse 6, the angel says, Come and see the place where he was lying. Well, that ver- verifies the correct location and the tomb. They're at the right place. He says in verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Now that's a fulfillment of what we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 32. He tells them, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. What well, I'm trying to drive home that none of this should shock the disciples. He told them up front what was going to happen. Likewise, in our study of Revelation, for the last year, and we'll hopefully finish up middle part of this year, we are reading about prophecy and what's going to happen. Why does he tell us these things? So when they happen, Tim's translation, we won't freak out. He told us this was going to happen. He warned us this was going to happen. It's going just as he said. He has the plan all worked out. Don't get worked up about it. Remain faithful to him and put your trust in him and everything will be fine. It will not be easy but he has you safely in his arms. And it does not preclude the other earlier resurrection appearances that we read about in Luke chapter 24 or John chapter 20. It does prepare his way for his appearance up north because after Passover came the feast of unleavened bread. And a lot of people from Galilee had made the passage down to Jerusalem. We look at the map today go, well, that's not too far. But well, they didn't have automobiles back then. They walked everywhere they went or they rode a camel or a donkey. So as they're going back home after having Passover and the Feast of the Living Brethren, they make their way back home, Jesus is going to appear to some of them up in Galilee. In verse 8, they say, They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. Now, the Greek word translated greeted, greeted means to rejoice or be, to be glad. The Holman Christian Standard translates it good morning. NIV, greetings, or New King James, rejoice. The one I'm reading out of the New American Standard simply says he greeted them. best way I can explain it, it'd be similar to how you say hello to somebody. Can you imagine that? <laughs> you just saw him crucified. He died a most horrific death. And he laid him in the tomb. You go there to prepare his body and put more spices on to embalm him properly according to Jewish custom. And you get there. He's not there. And as the angel told you to go, you're running. And all of a sudden, there he is. And he says, hello. No big deal. It's like, hello, here I am. Can you imagine? And upon that, in verse 9, he came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. It a posture and attitude of utter worship. It also testifies that Jesus did not raise it spiritually. He had a body. They're touching his feet. And I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Later on, Thomas would see his wounds that he received from the nails and from the spear. (laughs) You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. Doubting Thomas. You know what, I'll probably be the same exact way. Hey, when I see it, I'm going to believe it. I mean, you forget. Can, can I just chase another rabbit briefly? Crucifixion was the most horrible way for someone to die. If a Roman citizen, you wouldn't have to die that way. It was horrific. It was saved for the worst of the worst. In other words, when I, t- I tell you about Huntsville, the, the death chamber where Texas put inmates to death, what type of people, what character... Do people have their own death row? What kind of people come to your mind? It's public execution. You think of criminals. People who probably murder somebody in a horrific way. That they received the death pill and they're awaiting execution. That's what Jesus, he was executed as an enemy of the state. That's what the Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, told Pilate. You have to kill him. Because if you don't, he's going make an uprising. and uprising. Caesar's going to show up and he's going to take your head. I've heard a preacher say one time, excuse me, who said it, that Pilate's forever in hell going to be washing his hands, trying to get the blood off. Because you remember he did that. I'm washing my hands. I'm free of this man's blood. He is innocent. The blood is on you. And what we'll they responded? The blood be on us, our children, and our grandchildren. Jesus repeats... Some of the words that we find in verses 5 and 7 tells them, do not be afraid. Look at how the word changes. Go and take word, not to my disciples or not to my servants. What does he call them? My brethren. To leave for Galilee. Even though they deserted him. And those most crucial time he is demonstrating that he still loves them and accepts them. Even Peter, who told him just hours before he got arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told Jesus, I will follow you even unto the death. You remember what Jesus' response was? I'll tell you before the crow paused three times, you'll, you'll deny me three times. That happens and they make eye contact and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. He still loves and accepts those who abandon him. Now, Jesus is neither denying his uniqueness nor deifying the disciples. He is portraying the church, as we know it, as a brotherhood, sisterhood, as a family. Romans eight twenty nine for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's more to come. There's going to be another resurrection of those who love him when he comes back. Now, as I stated earlier in the introduction, it's appropriate that we celebrate Easter during the spring season. You know what happens at springtime from a science point of view? You have the earth, and as it tilts, it gives us seasons. On the first day of spring... Imagine standing on the equator. The sun would pass directly over you, and sp- our springtime, it comes north. We tilt towards to bring us warmer temperatures. Springtime, summer. And then in our fall, it tilts back the other way, so now the southern hemisphere gets their spring, and we get our fall and winter. So we have the springtime, that going on. And I, I did a little research about Easter eggs. Now, the first time they were painted and decorated... They're first recorded in the 13th century. Now, at that point, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, had become a Christian, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And the church at that point said, Look, during Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter, we don't want you eating any eggs during Holy Week. So in order to distinguish the Holy Week eggs from the other eggs, because the chicken kept laying eggs, they would paint them and decorate them. And in Orthodox traditions, they will paint them red to remind them of the blood that was shed on the cross. Eggs symbolize also life. As the egg breaks and the new chick comes out, so the tomb opened up and Jesus walked out. Spring is when life springs forth anew, and new life is what Easter is all about. Second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore, as anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, new creation. The old things passed away; behold, new things have come. Well, if you have not thought of this question, how do you become in Christ? First, you have to confess. Confess is the most simple definition that you agree with God that you are a sinner. You have broken his law. You're confessing. And by the way, you're not going to tell anything that God doesn't know already. He's just waiting for you to let go of your pride, humble yourself, and kneel and say, God, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. And then you need to repent of yourself. I don't want to do this anymore. I throw it all the way. I want to embrace you. I want to run to you. And you put your faith in Christ Jesus. You turn to him. What I mean by faith. Have any of you been on an airplane before? Yeah. If I came to you and said, Listen, I have some good news, I have some bad news. What do you want first? Bad news or good news? The good news? The good news is we have parachutes for everybody. The bad news, this plane is going down. The pilots have done everything they possibly can. They're going to keep her airborne as long as they can, but the plane is going to crash. Now, we have to be ready because when they tell us we're going to have to go, if around 10,000 feet, you're going to start jumping. You need to go because if you stay on this plane, you're going to die. And so I, we start to pass out parachutes to you. Now, with that parachute... The seats in coach are really small anyway, if you've been recently on an airplane. Either I've gotten bigger or the seats have gotten smaller, probably both. I give you that. What are you going to do with that parachute? Are you going to put it over a head bin or put it underneath your seat because it's too uncomfortable to wear? No, if you're taking seriously about what's going to happen, you don't know what's going to happen, so you put on that parachute. You'd probably put that parachute on so hard. Uh, so tight that it probably cut circulation off to your arms and your legs because you know at any time you're going to have to get out of that plane. And that parachute is the only thing that's going to save you because if you jump out of that plane the law of gravity is going to start pulling you down. There ain't nothing you can do to stop it. You can sing that song I believe I can fly can you flap your arms but nothing's going to arrest your fall until you pull that ripcord. You put in all your faith and trust that whoever packed that parachute knew what they were doing because now that parachute is going to open up, slow your fall, and you touch safely down to the ground. Notice none of the, you had no part to play in that. You put in your faith and trust in something completely out of yourself. That's what it means to trust Jesus. There is nothing you can do to trust yourself. You have to put your faith and trust in him completely. And so it follows, if I put my faith and trust in him for my eternal salvation, then I can trust him for all the other pressures of my life. Where should I live? What should I do? Who should I marry? What should I buy? How I spend my time? Because if I can trust him with the most important decision of my life, where I will spend eternity, then surely I can trust him with all the other things in my life. See how that follows? And he has your best interest in mind. Now, I don't want to start a feud here, but as I conclude this up, some people like Fords, some people like Chevys. Would you ever take a Ford manual to work on your Chevy pickup? Or a Ford manufacturer manual to read how to fix your Chevy pickup? That's crazy. You would go and find the owner's man, the people who built the car, who know how the car or truck's supposed to run, and tell you what you need to do to fix it. Now, you can fix it. It may run for a while, but when it breaks, it's going to do more damage than what you initially had. Or you can go to the manufacturer and say, okay, what do I need to fix this to make it right so it doesn't break again? A lot of times we run... To other manuals to see what we need to fix our lives with. And we try all these man made things the 10 steps for this, the 10 steps for that, the 5 steps for this, the 5 steps for that. Meanwhile, we have the owner's manual, the Bible, from the manufacturer who created us, God, to tell us what we need to do to fix our lives. So, why don't we go to that? You got problems with your marriage? What does the Word of God have to say? You have problems with your employer? what does the word of God have to say? You have problems with your neighbor, what does the word of God have to say? Instead of coming back with this big long thesis of what I should do, and then try to support with the Bible, let us go to the Bible first and foremost to see what it has to say about the issue. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's Jesus, the completed work of Jesus, not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You're saved by faith or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Have you done that? Have you admitted to your sinner that you've been looking for every place else for the answers and cannot find it? Come to Jesus. If you've done that at some point in your life, but yet your life seems to be going astray, Maybe you need to come. Jesus, I messed up. I, I've gotten off the path. Because here's the beauty about it, dear beloved. His grace is still here. It wasn't from our own failures, my own mistakes. I will not realize how deep that grace goes and it goes real deep. You can never go too far or go too far away without him reaching back. But you have to make the decision. You have to turn back to him. Jesus said, Who come to me, I'll do not reject them. Come to me. Anybody, doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Christianity is more than coming to church on Easter. Christianity is more than just coming to church and giving money. It goes much more deeper than that. It's having a living relationship with the creator of the world, the one who created you. He knows what's best for you. If you want your life and you want more abundant life, go to the one who created you and he'll tell you what to do. It's as simple as that. And he will change you and your life will never, ever be the same. I've seen it in my own life. And I see it in those that I've come across in ministry and in my own family. Are you tired of doing the same thing over and over again? You just can't seem to get past it. You know, that's a definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So here's our problem. I I'm won't I'm end with this. Our problem is our pride. We think we need to do it all ourselves. We can't. Guys, I'm speaking to you now. For the longest time, I thought it was a a sign of weakness as a man that I had to depend on somebody or somebody else. I learned that true freedom came from letting go and giving control of my life over the Christ. I cannot do it alone. I need him every single day. So I encourage you. I know he's speaking to you. Please respond in the way he's leading you. No one in this room is going to laugh at you, make fun of you, or belittle you in any way. What we will do is come alongside of you and pray with you, cry with you, and walk beside you in this life as together we follow our risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day and we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done. The words thank you don't seem big enough. And even now, you are working in our lives. Father, I, I pray as you continue to speak to us that we'll be sensitive to that and we'll respond. That we will not walk out of this place the same way in which we came in. Yes, Father. Father, I know you long and you desire to do a work in all of our lives in the life of this church. We have to let go of our pride and we have to humble ourselves to accept that. We thank you for your great love and your mercy and your grace. As your word says, you're long-suffering. You're so patient, so patient. I pray that you will knock down all the walls, that you break every chain, you take every obstacle away, that will stand between us and you. We long to see you. We long to hear your voice, oh God. Continue to speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Just stand on